Was Helen Keller a real person? Is that a dumb question? It, it might be, but people are asking it. Now, now, to be clear, they're not asking whether there was a woman named Helen Keller. What they're asking is the story that we've been told about her true. Was she really deaf and blind? Did she really write 14 books, hundreds of speeches? Did she really graduate from Harvard and fly an airplane? I mean, you expect me to believe that? Helen Keller denialism started on TikTok. But it's worth asking, how did a group of people come to label Helen Keller as fake news? It's just the latest and maybe one of the more outrageous examples of how we live in a cynical culture. We don't believe each other. We don't believe the stories that we're being told. And we sure don't believe the institutions in our society. From media to schools to military to Wall Street to the government. Here is how people through the decades answer the question, do you trust the government to do the right thing? And you see the high water mark is uh, in 1964. In the last 10 or so years, it's been about 15 to 20% say they do trust the government to do the right thing. And I look at that and I go, who are those 15 to 20%, right? I, I haven't met them. Uh, and how, it seems a little too high to me. But we would um, be mistaken if we didn't think that cynicism also comes to the church. The people don't, trust the church. And you can kind of understand why. There have been sexual scandals like Ravi Zacharias or a, a camp in the area. Uh, there have been narcissistic uh, uh, pastors on power trips. There's plenty of instances where the church has been so identified with one political party or the other that it's undermined the church's credibility and message. We're getting ready to launch a, a new podcast in a few weeks. And in the process, we've been interviewing some people. And one guy we talked to is a pastor in Tennessee. He's part of the, uh, Trump's, President Trump's advisory council before, uh, while he was still president, before the election, and even now. In fact, it wasn't long after we talked to him that he went down to Mar-a-Lago. He said, he was really upfront and said, the reason that I wanted in on this is I wanted to be in the room where it happened. Power is an addictive drug. But it happens on the other side too. Because also in getting ready for this podcast launch, we talked to a guy named David Gushy, a seminary professor and pastor who was on the religious left. He was part of President Obama's uh, political advisors, uh, the religious council. And what he said is that eventually you got to the point where you just knew that you were being used. It's not new. A guy named Charles Colson was the hatchet man for President Nixon back in the 70s. Now, Colson eventually goes to prison for what he did in Watergate. And then he becomes a Christian in prison. And when he gets out, he launches this huge ministry called Prison Fellowship, a fantastic ministry. But reflecting back on his time with President Nixon, here's what Charles Colson said. Sure, we use the prayer breakfast and church services and all that for political ends. One of my jobs in the White House was to romance religious leaders. We would bring them into the White House and they would be dazzled by the aura of the Oval Office. And I found them to be about the most pliable of any of the special interest groups that we worked with. The Church of Jesus Christ reduced 
to a special interest group. But all this lack of trust has caused people to begin to doubt, doubt their faith. I was interacting with a, a woman in seminary uh, on Twitter and, and you could tell that all these uh, sexual abuse scandals and power trips and political parties, it just becomes so much. You could just tell, here's a seminary student who's wondering, should I stay a Christian? And if she were to leave, she wouldn't be alone. People are, are leaving Christianity for all kinds of reasons, including the ones that we've been talking about. And maybe you feel that same way. Maybe you feel like your faith is hanging by a thread. Maybe you feel like you've been hurt or disappointed in the church or other Christians. Uh, maybe you're cynical and you're not sure what to believe. But for some reason, you're here this morning. I just want to say the only reason that after 34 years I'm still a Christian is because of Jesus. See, if you're confused and hurt and disappointed and bruised and felt betrayed, I get it. And I don't want to minimize any of that. All I want to do is ask you to not leave Jesus. Not by conscious choice, like I've had enough, I'm leaving. And not by slowly drifting away. I ate lunch with a guy today who said, yeah, or last week, I mean, who, 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 who said, because of COVID and getting out of habits, my family's faith is just, it's, it's drifting away from Jesus. But whatever happens, you don't want to leave him. Jesus made this claim in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. In a lost world, Jesus is the way to God. In a morally confused world, Jesus is the truth. And in a searching world, Jesus is the life. See, there is no one like Jesus. We live in a power-hungry world, but Jesus, he laid aside his power. Who does that? Who gives up power? Just a couple weeks ago, I had to apologize to a friend for being defensive. And what she had said to me was true. But Jesus was falsely accused and falsely attacked. And he was never defensive. I demand my rights. Jesus laid aside his rights. Jesus did not insist on his plan. He submitted to authority. He encouraged the brokenhearted and was patient with the needy. There is no one like Jesus and so all fall, we're going all in on Jesus. Come here in the fall, and this is what you're going to hear more and more about how he alone is worthy of your life. And all of it's going to be rooted in the Gospel of John. How does John present who Jesus is? At the end of the Gospel of John, after he's written 21 chapters about Jesus, he writes this. There are so many other things Jesus did. If they were all written down, each one of them, one by one, I can't even imagine a world big enough to hold such a library of books. See, what John is saying is that all you've heard and all you've read and all you know about Jesus is just a drop in the ocean of what there is to know about him because there is, we just can't say enough, preach enough, sing enough, right enough to contain Jesus. His glories are inexhaustible. It is easier to talk to an ant about the internet than for our sinful, finite mind to grasp the beauty of Jesus. And yet, 
And yet Hebrews 3.1 tells us, fix your thoughts on him. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. That's what we're doing all fall. We're going to obey this command. Because Jesus is the single most influential figure in human history. There are a greater number of people today, a greater percentage of the world's population that claims Jesus Christ as Lord today than any other time in human history. Jesus is the only leader of a worldwide faith and the strongest, most faithful, largest Jesus communities are non-white and non-Western. Why is it that Jesus is so attractive, that Jesus is so influential? What is it about him that's so compelling? Well, Dr. King told us to focus on the content of people's character. And when you examine the character of Jesus, you see character qualities come together in him that to us seem like they're almost opposites. But he brings them together for he is the majestic king of the universe, but he's also the humble foot washing servant. He is just always standing for truth and yet he is merciful to sinners. Jesus never compromises, but is always gracious. He's bold, but not harsh. He's humble. And yet everyone who heard him taught said he spoke with authority. Jesus had high principles, and yet he was approachable by the weakest and the broken. We shame and demonize the people that we disagree with, but Jesus showed us a different approach. He built bridges to his opponents. He challenged those in power, but he never wrote them off. He touched the lepers and ate with the Pharisees. He forgave his friends who betrayed him and deserted him, but he also forgave his enemies who crucified him. Jesus went into the home of Zacchaeus and shared a meal, and during the meal told Zacchaeus that he must repent. Jesus spoke respectfully to women labeled immoral and pushed out of polite society. Not only were his disciples surprised that he engaged with these women, but the women themselves were surprised, for men did not do that. See, Jesus did not cater to the cultural customs of his day when they were out of step with God's design. He did not cater to the customs of race, class, and gender when it went against God's laws. Jesus, there's, he, he, he said hard things to those women, though. Don't think he somehow let them off the hook. No, he called out one for her string of failed marriages and he challenged the other to leave her life of sin. You see, there is no one like Jesus. Are you really going to leave him? And Jesus perfectly mixes tenderness and strength. He bluntly confronts his opponent and the next moment is kind and patient and gentle with a social outcast. He displays perfect peace, sleeping on a boat in the middle of a storm. He displays perfect wisdom, confounding the religious leaders. He, he displays perfect self-control, answering Pilate's questions. He displays perfect humility, submitting to the Roman soldiers who beat and mocked him. He displays perfect love, hanging on a cross for sinners. If you leave Jesus, to whom will you go? You got somebody better than Jesus? And Jesus, he claimed to be God, but he was never proud or boastful. He was falsely accused, but never offended. Jesus, he spoke firmly to the people 
but was always approachable by the least of these. See, there's no one like Jesus. Let's look deeper at the claim in John 14. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he follows it with this controversial statement. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, the exclusivity of Jesus, him saying that the only way to God is through me, that has offended people in the first century when he said it and the 21st century that we live in. Because in every century, or every century, what people say in response to this is, aren't all religions basically the same? Well, let me ask you this. Are these two tablets basically the same? Oh, yeah, sure, right? Well, what if we slap some labels on them? Aspirin and arsenic. Now are they basically the same? You're like, well, no, not so much. I mean, aspirin can heal you and arsenic can kill you. Right, they, they, they're, they're similar in some ways, but they're really different in other ways. See, saying that all religions are basically the same is like saying aspirin and arsenic are basically, basically the same because they both come in tablet form. It's the differences that matter and the differences between Jesus and Christianity and all other religions is him. He's the difference. See, Jesus claims to be God. All the other religious leaders, they say that they'll show you the way to God, but, but Jesus said, I am the way. All the other religious leaders, they tell you they'll help find you the truth, but Jesus says, I am the truth. All the other religious leaders, they will tell you where to find the good life, but Jesus says, I am the life. See, all the other religious leaders, they had good advice. They had wise saying, that's great. But only Jesus offers himself to die as a substitute for sinners. See, no other religious leader even pretends to do something like that. So Jesus is the way in a lost world, but he's also the truth in a morally confused world. We love children. We love our children. We love other people's children. We think children are a gift as a society. We, we care about what happens to children. If you want to get something passed through Congress, you name it the We Love Children Act. This is good for Children Act, and everybody is instantly for it. But we live in a unique time in history because not in all times were children cared for and valued like they are in our day. In the ancient world, many babies didn't grow up to be kids and didn't grow up to be adults because they were abandoned, unwanted. They were left to die. And for the first eight days of a child's life, they could just be left. It was considered morally okay and legally fine. The head of the household could decide, are they going to embrace and raise this child or, or no, leave it uh, to, to, to fend for themselves and to quickly die. That usually happened in the first eight days, and it could be because of the family was poor. It could be because the family was rich and didn't want to divide the inheritance. It could be because of the gender. A lot of girls were abandoned. So imagine how radical it is that Jesus comes into that world as an infant and then grows up and says, unless you change and become like a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says that the person who is the greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who has childlike faith. Where does the dignity of children come from? It comes from Jesus. 
The, the virus that we have now that is wreaking so much havoc, it's not uncommon in human history. There have been viruses and plagues in the past, and, and unfortunately, sadly, many, many more people have, have died because there weren't vaccines. And when people knew that there was a sickness that was contagious and it was harmful, they would leave. They would abandon the sick. They would abandon the cities. Anybody had means got out of town, except, except the followers of Jesus, because they knew that they followed a Savior who touched the leper and who went toward the needs, who met people's needs and encouraged his followers to care for the sick and the hurting. And so that's exactly how Christians re responded. When everybody else ran away, they ran toward the need. So much so that even outsiders noticed. The Roman emperor Julian, a, a pagan, says this to his pagan priests. I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, the pagan priests, these impious Galileans, that's what he called Christians, observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. See, what Emperor Julian is doing is he's, is, is he's calling out his own pagan priests and saying that the Christians are, are showing us up. The reason they're growing is because they're loving people who are sick and hurting and dying. They don't just love and care for those people that agree with them or those people who believe what they do. They love and care for everybody. Christians saw that people with leprosy suffered. To have leprosy in the ancient world was a death sentence. It meant social isolation followed by death. But then there are two brothers, Gregory and Basil. They were pastors and they said, what if we, what if we raised money and built a building for lepers? What if we raised money and built a building for lepers that they could come in and receive care and love and attention from us before they died? We cannot keep them from dying, but we can provide them aid and comfort and relationship in the midst of their dying. Gregory, one of the brothers, said this in a famous sermon. He said, lepers have been made in the image of God in the same way you and I have. And then because he could see Christ in these lepers, he said, let us minister to Christ's needs. Let us give Christ nourishment. Let us clothe Christ. Let us gather Christ in. Let us show Christ honor. You know what this was? When these two brothers, Basil and Gregory, these two pastors, when they got their Christian friends together, their churches together, and raised money to build buildings for lepers, you know what that was the beginning of? Hospitals. Where did hospitals come from? They came from Jesus. Another one of Jesus' followers, a guy named Jean Durant, a Swiss man, couldn't stand hearing the sounds of wounded soldiers dying in the battlefield, crying out with their wounds. And so in the name of Christ, he started an organization you might have heard from, heard of. It's called the Red Cross. So every time you see the Red Cross going in toward the need, going in to help the hurting, what you're seeing there is the heart of Jesus. Probably all of us to one degree or another are familiar with a, a film made in the 1940s called It's a Wonderful Life. Jimmy Stewart, famous actor, he plays his character, George Bailey. And at one point in the film, uh, uh, George Bailey is able to see what the world would be like had he not been born. 
Well, what if we looked at the world? What if we asked the question, what would the world be like had Jesus not been born? If Jesus had not been born, we would live in a world without human rights and without human dignity. We would live in a world where power always triumphed. If Jesus had not been born, we would live in a world without hospitals and without university and without orphanages. If Jesus had not been born, the elderly would be discarded. The children would be seen as, as, as burdens left to fend for themselves. Women would be oppressed. Slavery would be the norm. The sick would be abandoned. You wouldn't want to live in a world in which Jesus had not been born. He changed Everything, he's the single most influential person to ever live. Everything good in our world is rooted back in him. So in the last century, uh, a, a pastor wrote this called Sol One Solitary Life. He was born in an obscure village. The child of a peasant woman, he grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30 when public opinion turned against him. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He was only 33 when his friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through a mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, which was his only property. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 19 centuries, now 20, have come and gone. And today, Jesus is the central figure of the human race and the leader of all mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, if you put them all together, they have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as this one solitary life. Are you sure you want to leave Jesus? To whom will you go? Do you have something better than Jesus? Look, I don't want to minimize your experience. I don't want to minimize the hurt the betrayal, the disappointment, the confusion, the cynicism. You're not alone in that. All I want to do is say in the middle of it, are you sure you want to leave Jesus? He's the most beautiful one. He's the one who understands all that you're going through. He is the one who has compassion on you and your circumstances. And Jesus is the one who forgives. He's the one who heals. He's the one who brings joy and suffering. He's the one who promises to renew the world and to renew you. Are you sure you want to leave him? Because you see, there's no one like Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is life. Amen.